Hello and welcome to the Farm Reform Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. I'm joined by Paul Tuna, the founder of Farm Reform. The two of us are in San Francisco at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. It's the end of the day Wednesday. And, uh, and we're here to just sit down and tell you a little bit about what we've been seeing and hearing. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing good, yeah. It's, uh, it's been a great few days here in San Francisco, but a rather wet few days. We've uh, got about half a year's worth of rain in half a week, I think. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And about half a year's worth of uh, content also. Right? <laughs> yeah, Head's exactly. pretty stuffed. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So do you want to start with some impressions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been great. Last time I was here myself was three years ago, just before the pandemic. And it really feels like, despite the rain, it's not dampened people's enthusiasm for getting together. It feels really busy. It may just be, you know, me not being here for a while, but it feels really busy. It feels really enthusiastic. And I think the general trend from people I've been chatting to is just the loving, just getting back together with people, socially interacting, meeting, perhaps a bit less about the kind of doing the deals and business and more about just networking and reconnecting. Yeah, for sure. Sure. I'm sure there are good deals going down too that we'll be hearing about in the I'm weeks sure. to come. Sure. There hasn't actually been a ton of news out of the show. There have been several major acquisitions. Um, but journalists I talk to who have done this more times than I do say that they, they're accustomed to a little more. Um, but I think show news is a lagging indicator, right? Because it's the deals that are being made that are more important than the deals that are being announced. Exactly. Yeah. And all the deals that you're seeing announced right now, they would have been in motion for quite a while. So if you want to know what's going to happen, JP Morgan, probably take a look in three to six months' time at what's coming out in the press. Yeah, for sure. So... I'll start with one thing I, one trend I heard a lot about that I thought was interesting is, is around cell and gene therapies. Yeah. Um, and, and this is not unexpected and this is coming because there have been like three total approved now, but um, that's three times as many as the year before. Right. And then, and they're, they're expecting it to, to really blow up. So we're expecting to see on the order of 10, 15, 25 in the next few years. Yeah. Um, so cell and gene therapies are sort of poised to explode, but what I didn't realize until I, I went to all these sessions was just how many uh, unique challenges they have. So I had heard about this business model challenge of how do you, the business model challenge of how do you sell something that is a one-time cure, hopefully, in a, in a system that's designed for uh, you know chronic management, but also the manufacturing challenges. The, these things are require really precise manufacturing and uh, a memorable uh, quote that I heard was that, and this was as to why you should be doing your cell and gene therapy manufacturing yourself. Trying to do that through a you know through an outsourced contractor is like trying to play Rachmaninoff with baseball gloves. That's a good analogy, and you're right. These are super exciting therapies. We've spoken about personalized medicine, precision medicine for quite a while now, but some of these cell and gene therapies take that down to the extreme of n equals one, the individual patient. So it's super exciting, but the whole cost model of healthcare is struggling as to how do we afford to pay for that stuff? Yeah, it's curative, but we still got to be able to pay for it somehow. And as you point out, the kind of manufacturing challenges are pretty significant. Yeah. Uh, again, it's stuff we have seen before with biological therapies. We know there are inconsistencies in how those proteins fold, depending on how they're made. It's a big problem for biogenerics as those come through. But again, all of that is amplified when you have these really cutting edge cell and gene therapies. Yeah. Uh, we're hearing 
on the small molecule side, more business as usual, but uh, a lot of talk about the here in the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act and the effect that that's going to have on how uh, pharma companies structure their pipelines, how they uh, how they, uh, they trickle out their indications. Um, the basic gist of it is that the, the there's a, a nine year period now between a, a drug's approval and uh, when the drug maker have to has to negotiate uh, prices with Medicare. Right. And uh, whether the way pharma companies tell it, it's a, it's a bit of a gunpoint negotiation. Yeah, and I think it, it sort of that links into one of my general themes as I pick up on conversations and talk to people here, which is there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the world of biotech. And there's been a bit of the kind of digital health stuff going on here, super exciting. But when, it, when I hear about the conversations with the big pharma, and you think about things like, you know, Chris Feeback coming into Biogen, for example, and giving some hints of where he's going. A lot of the big pharma conversations seems to be more about business, cost containment, efficiencies, off the back of COVID and some of this new stuff coming through than necessarily about the science. Um, which is a bit of a shame. You know, the science is really important, but equally within the climate we're in, you kind of understand why they're having those conversations. Yeah, definitely. And these conferences, I think, tend to be more about the science, uh, at least the, the presentation part, obviously. But yeah, although I will say, this is a good segue, I, I went to a really interesting panel about the commercialization marketing side of things with a bunch of pharma folks on it uh, from, from, you know, the, the big the companies have heard of, as it were. Um, and one thing they talked a lot about, surprisingly, a lot about was workforce. Um, you know, basically, like they're going through the same challenges as everyone else of like everyone wants to work from home and things. Sure. But also just the, the notion that like, what is the workforce shift from boomers to Gen Z going to look like for pharma? What does Gen Z want? And, and you know, how do they compete for the best talent? And, and that was a really encouraging conversation. Because one of the things they said is that the, this incoming generation is very mission driven. And so they need to be thinking about equity, diversity, sustainability, even more than they already are. Yeah, and I think it's a good reminder that we, we do like to think in pharma and biotech we're a very unique industry, but in some aspects, as you outlined there, we're not. We're facing the same challenges as any other industry. And I think, you know, I, I do feel on a kind of optimistic note, like we've seen companies start to adapt to that already. So the, the points you raise around sustainability and equity, it feels like that conversation has really been growing in pharma over the last few years. Not just in terms of, you know, the climate and that kind of environmental factors, but also when you dive into some of the subjects around things like clinical trials and equity in clinical trials, it's become a much bigger topic, particularly over the last year or two. I'm glad you brought up clinical trials. Um, fresh on my mind, I just came from a meeting with Michelle Longmire of Medible, which is going to be out as a video. Um, it was very instructive around what's happening with decentralized and, and what's happening with diversity in clinical right. trials. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting contrast because uh, I, I come from the digital health world, as you know, uh, and the story of telehealth and COVID has been like a story of, of we thought that COVID was going to finally bring telehealth into the mainstream and it was going to be all telehealth all the time. And instead, outside of specific fields like mental health, it's largely been a reversion to the mean. But that's not the story of decentralized clinical trials because of the money. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, old habits die hard. And if you want to change habits, financial incentives are often a very positive thing to do. And as we know, you know, trials are incredibly expensive, incredibly expensive, incredibly risky. 
And if you can do something that reduces that cost, even if it doesn't reduce the risk, it's very logical you're going to drive sales. Right. And, and that's fascinating to me because clinical trials really are a, a bottleneck, you know? Yeah. And, and Michelle was saying that, you know, if you if you track through the years the number of, of biotech companies and the number of approvals, they don't track together. You know, the number of approvals is sort of rate limiting. Exactly. And it, you know, it ties into a conversation I had with someone earlier today where, you know, they were reminding that for, for all the sort of looking forward you get at JP Morgan and people talking about the pipelines and the focus, actually the next four or five years of pharma and biotech is laid out because you can see what late stage trials are going on and how those play out yeah. will determine how the industry goes. Anything that's going to have a bigger impact beyond that, it's too far out of this stage. Yeah, that's how the, you know, accelerated approvals, but even though it's not that accelerated, right? <laughs> but if it's not already in phase two, you know, within the next four to five years, you're looking beyond that time. One more thing to say about clinical trials that I think is going to become more and more important is sort of the, I've been thinking of this as like a three-pronged trend. I shouldn't give too much away about this article that I'm thinking about writing, but I think the third piece is AI, right? And and synthetic control arms and do we need placebos Absolutely. of real human beings you know and one particular use case that i think is fascinating i heard this story twice in both times um it, it's you know the fda will will do a conditional approval of a therapy because it's you know a really promising therapy they want to get in the hands of patients and then they'll say to the company but now you need to do the post the phase three you've got to do it post-market right and um, a little bit of scrutiny, and you realize that there's a problem here because now the drug's in the market. You can get on it just by asking your doctor to prescribe it to you. Why on earth would you sign up for the clinical trial? Why would you take a 50% chance to be on a life-saving drug over a 100%? So they can't, these trials won't launch, they won't get off the ground. So, and so enter synthetic controls, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole host of issues here, but this is not, to your point, this is not just about trial efficiency. This is about ethical factors. Of you, you can't keep patients on placebo if you've got something that you think you know really, really is going to work. So I think it's a, I think it's a super exciting area, one that we need to keep an eye on and watch. And if it can improve efficiencies, make it more ethical, then that's all good. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's also, I mean, just to, to add on that, it, it also, to me, it feels like we're sort of taking small incremental steps towards a place where Clinical trials pre-approval are much more about the safety of a drug and making sure you're not putting something out there that's going to hurt people, first do no harm, and less perhaps about the efficacy. And that efficacy argument will come more in kind of observational studies and post-approval studies using real-world evidence, which is kind of logical. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it makes sense to get there. That's a big shift in the system. So I've got one more big trend and then... Uh, if you've got any others, we can do. Um, but it's just neuro. Every, almost every person I asked this question about what are the big R&D trends for 2023 told me this is going to be the year for CNS and, and neuro. And um, people told me that for different reasons. <laughs> um, some just because of Adahome and, and Lacanamab, which I will never learn to say. Um, and just the, the, that those you know approvals are, are blazing a trail. Um, but also, uh, in, in some of these CNS diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, um, one of the big problems has been uh, understanding who has the disease, having a, the biomarkers you need to even recruit a clinical trial population, much less you know, run a trial. And um, 
and that's starting to change. There are new, uh, there's new promising biomarkers, new ways for us to identify these populations, so that we can actually do the research. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, CNS and Euro, it's, it's a whole exciting space, and some of the conversations I've been having, we've all seen, you know, big pharma attracting slightly from that space. Everyone's chasing oncology, and I kind of understand why it makes sense. But then as a balance, you've got some newer players coming in. And to your point about digital health, it's not just newer kind of pharma and biotech players coming in, it's that whole digital intervention. And when people talk about digital health, you immediately think about digital therapeutics, something you can do or take that intervenes and potentially competes with a medicine. But it's bigger than that. It's also about how do we take you know, those trials in, in neuro and make them less subjective, more objective measurement. How do we do earlier diagnosis? And there's all kinds of fun stuff coming through that's looking at things like the way you uh, talk, the way you walk. You know, we've, we've seen studies around what you're typing and what it says about your mental state, those kind of things. So it's not necessarily the old arguments of is it digital versus medicine? It's how does it support medicine's development as well? Yeah, that's an excellent point. I actually tweeted earlier this week that one thing I was going to be looking out for was, was whether digital was in the conversation if we weren't at a digital panel, right? Is our companies thinking of digital therapeutics, digital health as part of their overall strategy, part of their overall pipeline? And um, by and large, I think often the answer is no. But I think here in CNS, I did hear, you know, kind of natural conversation about wearables, about, you know, that kind of sensor data, real world evidence, because that is like a crucial way to understand gait for Parkinson's or something like that, or or voice biomarkers to understand the degradation that happens with Alzheimer's. These folks are really keyed into it. Yeah, and I would, I would actually challenge that a bit. I think from the conversations I have, I feel like actually, not just in Euro, but in all areas, farmers taking a more integrated, integrated approach to the medicine side and digital, whether it's digital companions, DTX, whatever it may be. Now, for sure, it feels like at JP Morgan, some of the digital sideshow has kind of moved away. There's perhaps not quite the same level of noise. But that's also to some degree good, because when we stop talking about digital health as a separate thing, and it's just part of R&D, medical, commercialization, then we've got that. And I really do feel, and I hear in the conversations, that companies are starting to take that more integrated approach. We've got a long way to go, let's be clear about this. But it's becoming more mainstream. Yeah, I think that's true. We don't need the sideshow. We need yeah. integration. But we don't want to be a sideshow. It's yeah. part of the and biotech and medicine. I do think with digital therapeutics themselves, they're in a slightly weird spot, I think, because um, there's there have been some, some high-profile failures. Uh, and there is, what I'm hearing, some skittishness. Some digital therapeutics are even skittish about identifying that way. Absolutely. They would rather call themselves something else because it's got a bad taste in farmer's mouth right now. Yeah, so I, yeah. But I think the next one to really knock it out of the park can redeem that, you know? Yeah, and, and you and I were together, Jonah, in a conversation we had yesterday with one of the sort of investors in, in digital health. And, you know, they were talking about one of their portfolio companies is focused on how do they rebrand as not being DTX because of some of that background noise. You know, I've heard other pharma companies say we won't touch DTX. We're interested in things like, you know, companion diagnostics of the digital, but not DTX itself. So, yeah, there's a bit of bad press at the moment, but I think that's, if we go back to the concept of fail better and learning from failure, that's part of the growth process. Yeah, 
I went to the Digital Medicine Society Dimes um, networking event. It was really good uh, group of people, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't what I would call a mainstream group of people. <laughs> it was some disruptors. <laughs> well, we, we need that as well. We need that as well. And healthcare, as, as we both know, is pretty hard to disrupt as an industry. Yeah, for sure. So anything else you can think of in the la- next three minutes before we get you back to your room so you can change before your Well, I think, I think just the general trend goes back to what I was saying at the start around, you know, people have often come to JP Morgan and it's really focused on, we're going to meet this person and try and do this business deal or whatever it might be. Everybody I've spoken to as I've interacted here, and maybe this is a COVID impact, I've seen this last few days as more of a kind of, let's just meet people, let's network, let's re-engage, let's see how people are doing. And I feel like the real business of JPM will probably come next week or the week after or the month after in the follow-up meetings. Mm. People are just really hungry to reconnect and see how people are doing. And, and I've really felt that energy around yeah. San Francisco. And sort of compare notes, right? Because you've yes. been working yeah. in your little silos, your pods, to use a covid euphemism absolutely and, and you, some of those chance encounters you get in this kind of meeting i mean i met a guy who was on the same flight over as me i used to work with 15 years ago i haven't seen for 15 years caught up with today and great to compare notes you sadly don't get that with the zoom and teams meetings totally um speaking of covid i was a little surprised at what we didn't hear which was a lot of talk about covid you know it's it's really, I mean, obviously it's changed the industry in profound ways, sure. but it also feels like it's, I thought, you know, mRNA vaccines would be the headlining panel at every, no, we, we did that, I guess, during the virtual JPMs last year. We're on to other things. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a good point, actually, because I think about my conversations the last few days, and I think probably the only conversation I've had about COVID was back at my hotel, having a beer at the end of the day, got chatting to the guy next to me, and it turns out he was the personal bodyguard for the CEO of BioNTech. And I started to ask the question of why does he need a bodyguard, and then realized, of course, <laughs> because there's a lot of anti-vaxxers out there that don't like that kind of stuff. But in you know, my general conversation, it's just not featured. I think people are kind of tired of COVID. They don't want to talk about it. They want to move on and think about what comes next, even though we know it is still around and still an issue. Yeah, yeah. someone, a very uh, vibrant speaker said something like, you know, somehow we, the industry was able to all come together and, and work together for COVID. And apparently your grandmother's cancer is not as important. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, and we're, we're reminding ourselves that life goes on and the stuff we learn from COVID, that life goes on and there's other problems that we need to tackle. And what if we could bring that same spirit of collaboration to them? Well, and I think we are seeing some of that as well. I mean, the, the major focus it's put on vaccines and how we're now looking more at things like cancer vaccines. You have to attribute at least some of that to the pandemic. For sure. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Paul. Uh, hopefully the, the sound will work on this. Um, but uh, it's it's been a, a great show. Um, you can check out the live blogs. You can check out uh, some post-show pieces from me and hopefully Paul. You can check out uh, our, our video content. Um, yeah. Lots of lots of JPM uh, coming your way from Farm Forum. Thanks, Jenny. Yeah, it's been great to catch up with people and great to catch up with you. Absolutely. That concludes this episode of the Farm Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at farmforum.com slash podcast. 
The Farmer Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Farmer Forum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.